the LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Community Podcast. Presentations and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Eric Paltel of Coleman and Saucier on the Wisconsin Union Battle. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis Legal Podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. Eric Paltel has practiced law since 1987, concentrating in the representation of public and private sector employers in all aspects of labor and employment law. Before joining Coleman and Saucier as a partner in 2002, Mr. Paltel was a partner with one of the world's largest law firms, Piper Rudnick, now known as DLA Piper. His practice includes employment discrimination and sexual harassment suits, ADA and FMLA litigation, wrongful discharge actions, wage and hour cases, ERISA litigation, National Labor Relations Board proceedings, collective bargaining negotiations, and grievance arbitrations. In addition, a significant part of Mr. Paltel's practice involves management training and counseling. For the past seven years now, he's been listed as one of the top labor attorneys in Maryland in the Chambers USA publication, America's Leading Business Lawyers. Mr. Paltel, it's great to have you with us on this LexisNexis Legal Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Steve. Provide a little more information about your background, if you would. Steve, I've been representing management in labor and employment law for about 25 years. Uh, Most of my practice has been focused on representing both private and public sector employers in collective bargaining, grievances, and labor arbitrations. About the past 15 years or so, I've spent the majority of that time doing public sector as opposed to private sector bargaining, although I still do a fair amount of private sector bargaining as well. And uh, I'm on the faculty of the National Public Employers Labor Relations Association, and I periodically lecture on issues related to public sector collective bargaining. Certainly well qualified to talk about some of these issues today. We've all seen the news about what's been going on in Wisconsin. Thousands of union supporters protesting Governor Scott Walker's budget proposals. Talk about the issue in Madison. Sure. Um, Basically, you've got five things at play in, in Madison right now. First off, Governor Walker has proposed that state employees contribute 5.8% of their pay to their pension and 12.6% towards health care. At the present time, employees are paying nothing towards their pension and only about 6% towards health care. So both their pension and their health care costs are well below those of most public sector and certainly most uh, private sector employees. Uh, The second thing that Governor Walker has proposed is that employees who are represented by unions not be allowed to bargain over health care and pension in the future, and that any wage increases that they get be limited to no more than the consumer price index. Uh, The third thing he's got in his legislation is a requirement that unions representing public sector employees be required to undergo an annual vote Uh, to establish that the union still enjoys the support of a majority of the employees. So it's almost like an annual election to keep the union representing those employees. Uh, Fourth thing would be a requirement that any future labor contracts be limited to one year in duration and that the wages the employees get under those contracts are frozen until the new agreement is ratified by the membership. And then finally, and perhaps one of the real flashpoints here, 
uh, would be a prohibition on the state deducting union dues from employee paychecks, meaning the unions would actually have to get the employees to mail in their union dues to the unions each month. So what brought us to this showdown between the governor and, and the unions representing the state workers? Well, you know, the immediate issue is Wisconsin, like so many states and local governments right now, is facing some real severe budgetary pressures. Uh, Wisconsin, as I understand it, is facing a $137 million gap in its current budget, so it's under tremendous pressure to find ways to reduce expenses. And Wisconsin, like most states, uh, payroll personnel costs comprise a very, very large percentage of the state's obligations. It's not unusual that uh, for a a county or a, a city that personnel costs comprise 80 to 85 percent of the uh, city's budgetary obligations. So with that kind of pressure, the governor has targeted the costs that are brought about by the collective bargaining agreements. Now, with Governor Walker, he's got a history, uh, having been the Milwaukee County Executive for eight years, where uh, he has gone to battle with the unions in the past, and he has sought concessions from them, and he was unsuccessful. Uh, when he was county executive, he asked for concessions at the bargaining table. The unions refused, and he ended up having to lay off uh, a fairly large number of employees in Milwaukee County. Um, I think that history is now driving him to try to legislate his way around collective bargaining going forward. And what happened in Wisconsin, as in most or many states last fall, was there was a change in the political climate. Mm-hmm. Republicans took control of the state house and the legislature. And Governor Walker believes that assuming those Democratic legislators come back and they can have a vote, he believes he has the votes to essentially enact wholesale changes in the collective bargaining relationship between Wisconsin and its employees. But what would happen if this legislation does not pass? If he can't get this passed, basically, the governor's got three options at that point. Option A would be to raise taxes, which is uh, politically probably unpalpable, certainly unpopular at this point. Secondly, find other places in the budget to cut. And the third option, which seems to be where he's leaning right now, would be to begin laying off employees. It's my understanding that the governor sent out notices to approximately 1,500 employees that they would be laid off beginning uh, April 1st, I believe. And the way this works under the union contracts is it's going to be the, the new hires, what's called LIFO, last in, first out, are the people who get laid off. So you would see, for the most part, relatively junior new hires being laid off unless this can get resolved. Eric, Wisconsin isn't the only state uh, where we're seeing this happening. There have been similar issues uh, in Michigan and Ohio and Indiana and New Jersey and other states uh, are also discussing changes in laws giving collective bargaining rights to public workers. But why is all of this happening? Why is all of it coming to the forefront now? Steve, you've got basically two things that are driving this. And it's the enormous liability which states are facing for both pensions and retiree medical benefits. Um, these obligations are estimated to range somewhere between $1 trillion and $3 trillion in the aggregate. And I saw something in the Washington Post last week that um, that number might even be off by $1.5 trillion. So it might even be another $1.5 trillion greater. In addition. <laughs> in addition to that. And, and you know, to put these numbers in perspective, 
during the nine years we have been at war in Iraq, we've spent $900 billion. So that's a, a whole lot of money. But again, that's substantially less than what we're talking about in terms of pension and retiree medical benefit obligations. So you have, on the pension side, a study that came out from the Pew Center on the states in 2008 showed that uh, state pension systems were 84% funded, which left a very, very substantial shortfall. I suspect that number is now well below the 84% because of what happened in the stock market in 2008. On the retiree medical side, there is, again, varying estimates, but it looks like in the aggregate, there are unfunded obligations totaling $1.5 trillion just for retiree medical benefits. So what we have here are essentially unsustainable commitments to pensions and retiree medical benefits for these employees, and states and localities have got to find some way to either rein in these benefits or bring them to a complete stop, or else we're going to have much larger problems. Talk a little bit more about the situation involving the retiree medical obligations. Well, you know, in retiree medical, what we had here, uh, what has really brought this to the head is a new accounting regulation called GASB 45, which began taking effect in 2007 and was finally extended to apply to all governments in 2009. Prior to GASB 45, states and localities did not have to show the liability for retiree medical benefits on their books, so they could promise these benefits to their employees and essentially not have to account for it as a liability. Well, by 2009, every state and local government does have to account for that, and what we're seeing now is most jurisdictions have either not funded those obligations at all or have only minimal funding available for those obligations. So again, it's this new regulation which has brought the proverbial chickens home to roost and forced governments to now account for these liabilities. How did the state and local governments get into this situation? I mean, how did they get so deep in the red on retiree medical obligations and, and pensions? I mean, you mentioned 2008. I imagine the economic crisis a few years ago had, had something to do with this. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a, certainly a very large part of it, Steve. And basically, what, what you had here is if you look at the, the history of these promises of pension and retiree medical benefits, they go back about 20 years ago. It was, you know, about that time in the early 1990s, maybe the late 1980s, when governments began making these very generous promises of rich retirement benefits to unions, uh, the return that the governments got was labor peace. And a lot of times the elected officials got support from organized labor. So this was kind of a win-win situation because the governments could make these promises of pensions and retiree medical benefits. They didn't even have to account for the retiree medical benefits on their books. And the pensions were something which wouldn't really be an issue till years down the line. And as long as the stock market did well, it might never be an issue because the returns might pay for the pensions by themselves. So it seemed like a win-win situation 20 years ago. Well, then, as you very astutely pointed out, Steve, 2008 happened. The bubble burst, the market crashed, and we saw pension funds sometimes losing 50% of their value in the course of just one, not even a year, I mean, a few months. Yeah. So it just was 
like a perfect storm of just coming through and and wiping out the returns that these funds had accumulated. And that occurred at the same time that you began having retirees leaving and taking advantage of these benefits. If you think about the way this works in the public sector, most police and firefighters are allowed to retire after 20 years of service. So you were now at a point with many of these police and firefighters entering into their early to mid-40s. They're now retirement eligible. They were able to go out and start drawing on these retired medical benefits and these pensions at the same time that the funds had lost a whole lot of their value in 2008. And keep in mind, these are ladies and gentlemen who are retiring in their early to mid-40s. They may continue to draw these benefits for another 30 to 40 years. So it's a huge liability that these states and localities have taken on. A real double whammy. Yeah. Is it possible for governments to unilaterally get out of these retirement obligations? You know, Steve, on the pension side, it is tough. It is difficult to get out of any commitments made retroactively to people who are either already retired or current employees. What you can do is change benefits prospectively. So what that means is for new hires, you can eliminate or reduce the benefits. For current employees, you can reduce the amount of benefit that they accumulate going forward. But in terms of making changes to what's already been promised, very difficult to do because of constitutional limitations imposed by both the U.S. Constitution and state constitutions. On the other hand, retiree medical is somewhat easier to change unless there is language in the collective bargaining agreement which mandates benefits cannot be changed. In the absence of that language, a locality or a state government should be able to modify retiree medical benefits. We've been talking primarily about the, the public sector here. But how does the public sector differ from the private sector? Well, you know, in the private sector, what happens is the business itself bears the cost of those wage and benefit promises. So if a business agrees to very generous wages or benefits at the bargaining table and prices itself out of the market, then that employer is not going to be able to compete. Uh, On the other hand, in the public sector, those wage and benefit costs get passed on to the taxpayer and there is no concern about the inability to compete with others providing the same services because there is no competition for the provision of governmental services. So that's the, the primary difference. The other one, of course, is that in the public sector, uh, the employer, who is the government, may very well be receiving political support, both financially and otherwise, from the unions that represent the employees. So it's a little harder for the employer to take a hard-line stance at the bargaining table when those same people it's bargaining with are out there working the polls for that politician come election day. So what would you say is ultimately at stake here? You know, Steve, something has to be done about the pension and retiree medical benefit obligations. Like I was saying, with, with numbers in the trillions of dollars in liability, these issues have to be addressed or else the system is going to collapse upon itself. You're going to see either state and local governments defaulting on their bond obligations, or you're going to see the governments defaulting on their pension obligations, or you might even see both. But something has to be done. So in this case, you have Governor Walker attempting to do something, but uh, you think maybe he's gone too far here? You know, I admire his courage. I mean, having been at the bargaining table myself dozens and dozens of times over the years, 
I admire his courage in taking these issues on, but I think he may have gone or tried to go too far too fast. Uh, there's no doubt the pension and retiree medical changes that he's asking for are much needed. Uh, they're justifiable. The, the rates these people would pay are still well below the, the rates that most employees pay. Um, I also think that removing pension and medical issues from collective bargaining makes sense because these are huge liabilities borne by the states and localities, and, and I think those are things which should not be subject to bargaining. But on the other hand, limiting wage increases to the CPI, uh, requiring unions to recertify annually, taking away the right to bargain over other issues, that's probably more than is necessary to start bringing some of these financial issues under control. And frankly, it's probably creating a lot more pushback than there otherwise might be if we were focusing instead just on the economic issues. I imagine, though, there are many other states that are watching this situation very closely. Oh, yes, there are. Uh, I think that, you know, it's California, New Jersey, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, uh, among others, are facing very, very similar problems, and they're waiting to see what plays out up in Madison, and uh, we'll probably take their cues from the way this gets resolved. Well, it's been interesting so far and will indeed be interesting to see how this gets resolved. And I'd like to thank you for your analysis and your views on the situation and invite you back as things develop. Well, it was a pleasure to be here, Steve. I'd be happy to come back and talk about it again. Eric Portell of Coleman & Saucier. Thank you for listening to this LexisNexis legal podcast. Visit the LexisNexis communities at LexisNexis.com slash community. The LexisNexis Emerging Issues Law Community Podcast, copyright 2011, by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. I'm Steve Bursler. Thank you for listening.